Welcome to the first episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer Katie here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your hosts, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guests, Devin Kelly and George Sawaya. Today with me, I have Devin Kelly. Say something about yourself. Hi. Say something really interesting. Um... The finback whale is the world's second largest whale, but the loudest mammal. Okay. I would have gone with the last time we were drinking these drinks, you almost shat yourself. I did almost shit myself. Okay, but we'll move on. We'll move on. George, introduce yourself. George, your your face Uh. has fallen from our taping space, but that's okay. Yeah, I'm invisible, though. I... It makes me easier to talk to. There's an interesting fact. I'm I'm easier to speak to when I can't be witnessed. That's beautiful. How about that? No, it, I think so. Well, I'll introduce myself. I'm Brian, and I uh, co-founded with Katie and uh, our friend John. But really, Devin is yeah. the bellwether for all this shit, aren't you, Devin? You came up with a name for the reading series. I am. I am the bellwether. Yes. So okay. It's been years. So you guys are writers. I'm a writer. That was. The worst introductions I've ever heard in my life. That's okay. We'll we'll continue. Um, more importantly, we have this hour's brand of fuckery, which will continue on every single episode that we ever make. We'll do something stupid. Yes. Um, and this one is the George Pour, brought to you by George. George, can you tell us what a George Pour well, is? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I did write down some instructions and I went over them with George, but I'd be happy to let George actually just go ahead. And- and talk about it. Yeah, it's a simple principle, really. It's it's a, a concoction like most good things uh, that is born out of hardship, as so many things in the South are. Uh, it's born out of hardship. You've got about uh, $11 for a bottle of whiskey, usually Old Crow, preferably Jim Beam if you're sitting flush, if it's payday. Or the dickle. Uh, you get about a, the dickle. Yeah, the dickle or the, yeah you could use dickle as okay, well. Okay, I use that dickle as well, but it ne- needs to be know. a bourbon. Yeah. Okay. Let me see. It needs to be a bourbon, and it's not a bourbon. I did it. We did. It's, we we have got a bourbon. A bourbon. Here. It. You know. It's. It's not. What it's you better want, than. But it's a bourbon. It's not ideal. And then you need some kind of soda. Usually, uh, a diet Dr Pepper. If you're watching your figure, you could, they can be procured from any. Uh, you know, neighborhood gas stations, usually one or two should do it for the bottle, maybe three. Uh, you take a pint glass, you fill it up to the top, brimming with ice, brimming with the ice all the way up, all the way up. The ice all the way You fill about three quarters. Yeah. All ice has got to be all the way up. That's yeah. chief. It's I chief that. that the ice must be all the way up. <laughs> I remember Then you, you pour in that. about three quarters, three quarters bourbon, top it off with Dr. Pepper, stir, and enjoy. Imbibe until... Uh, whatever you're escaping has been thoroughly evaded. Or until something comes to escape you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this well, is true. This time yeah. we'll avoid any marijuana, uh, which I think is what tipped Devin over the edge all those sure. years ago. <laughs> yes. But, uh, yeah, okay. not advisable to, to mix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless you're me. I like mixing. I will. Later. Later I will mix. So the so you, you gave us all the instructions, which is great. Thank you for relieving me of that duty. But uh, 
the last the last instruction, the last directive is to consume the George Pour, which we will now do over the course of this podcast. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then we will talk about something literary. Sapiens, a brief history of humankind by Yuval Noah Harari, an Israelite. An Israelite, is that too biblical? He's from Israel. Basically, George thinks, you know, Israel's hilarious. You know, George, do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> not, not, that not that I think would be fitting for this podcast. <laughs> I think enough. Israelite is hilarious. Israelite's the Canaanites. Yeah, it does I sound... I myself am a Phoenician. Yeah. I'm a Sephardic. I think I, I think <laughs> yeah. is a great is a great suffix for a group of people, and I I I, I wish that "ite" was used as a suffix for all Brianite. Yes, Are we Brianites? I mean I'm a Washington <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Washingtonian, but I wish I was a uh, Washingtonite. Yeah, that'd be better. Or a New Yorkite. Okay, so Fair anyways, enough. this this uh, Israelite, this young Israel gentleman, wrote a book basically about humans. But not just humans, uh, Homo sapiens in particular. So basically dating back about 70,000 years to the emergence of language, essentially. Um, And, you know, he goes on to talk about how language shaped our origin myths, which controlled populations and set laws and ethics and, you know, created money and, you know, all that motivation for economies and stuff like that. But before he does any of that, he talks about how we evolved past all the other uh, human species and animals in the world because of... The ability to tell fiction or to lie, you know, whichever you prefer. Um, and being that we all have engaged in this practice. Narrative. Everyone in the world. Narrative. Oral history. Ev- everyone in this room has participated in writing fiction as a serious practice, which I would not recommend to anyone else. But uh, we, also, we all lie and stuff, Ugh. you know. But, you know, so we thought this was a good place to start. We're all writers. We're starting a press. We're publishing my novel first, which is, you know, borderline. And not a lie. Cronyism, yeah. maybe. It's truly. Though. But uh, anyway, yeah. so so fiction is the basis of everything. That's what he says. Yeah, I'm, I'm, was, I'm kind of paraphrasing. What do we have to, what do we have to say about that? I was that? actually just uh, talking about this in my mm-hmm. role as a high school teacher and shaper of young minds. Um, we were reading, George, have you read The Great Gatsby? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> There's a pause there. Yeah. He's, he's lying. We were talking, we were talking about. Uh, I'm going to make this quick because I, I don't want to. I don't want to take up most of the space here, which I inevitably won't. Um, but we were ranking. We did an exercise. We just finished the book, and we did an exercise ranking the main characters in The Great Gatsby from most honest to least honest. Ooh, and. When we initially did it, all the students I had ranked Nick Carraway, the narrator of The Great Gatsby, as the most honest person simply because he was the the narrator. Off the hip, I probably would have said the same. um, And it was interesting to introduce the idea to them that Nick Carraway um, is, one, fictional um, and not F. Scott Fitzgerald. And because of that... um, could contain an element of unreliability as a narrator. And so it's sort of a fictional representation of the unreliability of narrative as a practice. That's meta. For, um, as a practice for, for, for conveying truth. Yes. And um, I, I did a quick little example with them of like, anytime you tell a story, I was talking mm-hmm. to them, 
that you think is funny and no one laughs, the first thing you do if you tell that story again is what? What do you do? I don't know. Change the punchline? Yeah. You, well, you, you do some sort of <laughs> embellishment. You, yeah. you embellish like... You so do better. You do, yeah, you tell it better. <laughs> you, yeah, you tell it better, which in essence means you have to incorporate some element of the lie. Yeah. Um, no, that's 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 yeah. interesting, Dev, because because uh, you're talking like like so. What you're saying is that there's almost like a snowball effect that we get the reward of a of a laugh when we tell a story, and that encourages like further hyperbole, further fictionalizing, like a like the the, the more outlandish it becomes, like the, uh, fish. the more feedback, like positive feedback we get. Yeah, like the fish, like the fish. Yeah, every time you, every time you tell the fish story, your hands grow farther apart. Oh, oh that's like, yeah, the, okay. The, 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 yeah. the fish I caught. Yeah, I thought yeah. the fish was some sort of story yeah. we all read in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> now, remember and the, and that, that everything... you tied that back to. <laughs> go ahead, George. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was no, just going to so... say that that, <laughs> that you tied that back to 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 honesty. I was reading an article a while back about why humans, and this will tie back into uh, sapiens as well, why humans are so uh, piss poor at detecting lies. That we're just we're we're not good at it. Uh, that a human being has about a fifty-four percent chance, if I'm remembering correctly, of of telling when there's a lie. So a little wow. bit better hmm. than than a, than a coin flip that. for That's for a... being able for being able to identify when you're being lied to because that, we yeah. don't have a lot of practice. Like we don't get feedback when we're when we're when we're right and we think somebody's lying. Uh, a lot of the times they'll just deny it. Uh, and then when we're wrong and we, we're sure <laughs> that somebody's policy. lying, like we can't be convinced, you know. So we're we're bad at lying because we're 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 a we're unpracticed at it, and b because we don't get a lot of feedback. So even the best of us is marginally better than a coin toss, uh, which uh, which which is why we have so many fictions and why fictions are so good for us. Perhaps we can't segregate uh, fact from from fiction quite as aptly as we think we can. That's interesting. I I like your point. I don't know if we're unpracticed at lying so much as we're unpracticed at at I'm trying to think about because I think we're all good at lying because we're all for them everyone's told us mm. so, I think in this day and age we're probably worse at lying than ever, I would think. Yeah, Just because maybe. of all of the tools that are, you know, out there to parse our lies and stuff like that. Um but I don't know. I mean, relating back to fiction, I'll say the the moment I realized I got to be a better writer was when I stopped trying to reveal truths and started just writing shit that I thought seemed real to me. Which seems like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. It's a uh, it turns it turns like kind of like a serious like academic sort of uh, endeavor into something that I'm just kind of playing around with. And when we're playing around is when we're telling jokes, I guess, you know, and so yeah. you spin a better lie that way. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, obviously fiction has a, a verisimilitude that everyone seeks, but not in every book. Yeah, I could I could. Well, when you say when you say not trying to, like, write truth, uh, do you mean sort of like uh, attempting attempting profundity in, in a way like you That's you're, you're having fun with? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think profundity is enjoyable. You know, I, I think I think if people wanted profundity, they could they could pick up one of the great holy books of the world and <laughs> and, and find themselves yeah. beset by by wisdom. You know, or the scarlet. I, letter. I think people have to be, yeah, or the scarlet letter. People have to be fooled 
into into epiphany or 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 you know hoodwinked into mm-hmm. into wisdom. You can't just throw it at them unless you're a poet on Twitter or uh, a prognosticator in one of America's yeah. great news channels. I think um, being I you think, you have to. Well, I think your line "being fooled into epiphany" is is a great little is a great great little catchphrase. That's a good memoir title. By yeah. The way. Well, yeah. Fooled it, into epiphany. Fooled into epiphany. <laughs> That's great. Would shamefully, be a, a best selling memoir by mm-hmm. someone who doesn't deserve that title. But um, the idea of being fooled into epiphany is is quite apt, I think, when you consider what quality narrative and fiction does for you. I'm thinking of like people like Barry Hanna. I'm thinking of of like storytellers who do not seem on the surface level like they are dealing with universal truths until you finish the story and realize that they've been dealing with universal truths the whole time. Yeah, and that's a skill because to write something and to put it down and know that you might be navel gazing half the time and then you wake up and you're like, oh shit, I got to relate this to other people. I mean, that doesn't happen with every story or everything you write, but sometimes it does. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, that's... That that's that's the pinnacle of of fiction. I mean, if you want to if you want to reach profundity, you got to reach everyone, and you're not going to do that on a line to line basis. There's only a few books I've read that you get to the last line and you're like, oh shit, I just got gut checked. You know, they they asked this of of Hemingway when he was given his Nobel Prize. They said uh, they were talking specifically about uh, the Old Man on the Sea, and somebody had the well, I, what I can only imagine was the nerve to ask him. Uh, how he was able to construct to construct such a such an allegory. Uh, it was it was most it was one of his most allegorical works. They claimed, and Hemingway, of course, said that, that he was never trying to write an allegory. They never yeah, that, tries to write anything. That, that makes completely that makes complete sense to me because I couldn't tell you what fucking allegory lies in in that in that novella. <laughs> like what 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 is that? <laughs> like honestly, bring like, the fish in the boat. I think symbolism is. <laughs> I think symbolism it's an is really for fishing. Yeah, yeah. It's a quality book. It's a metaphor fishing. for the for the thing that we're doing. Um, <laughs> no, I, I honestly think that symbolism can be very powerful, but I think it's also bullshit more than ninety percent of the time. To be honest, I think it's uh, projected by the reader, which is yeah. fine. You know, it's death of the author like shit. But yeah. you know, well, I mean, I I've I've felt th- I've felt this realization in a in in quite. A more hardcore way teaching high school English because you focus when you're teaching high school English, you focus on those terms that you feel like you're never going to use again, like symbolism. And we were reading, we read Scarlet Letter to open, which is replete with symbolism. That's true. We never talked about symbolism in in grad school. Because why would we do that? Because, yeah, you like we read Scarlet Letter and everything becomes a symbol. And then you... And then we read The Great Gatsby and everything is also a symbol, like the green light or um, the green light or the, the, <laughs> the billboard with Dr. Eckelberg's eye, eyeglasses or the yellow car or just anything that has a color. And it serves a purpose to tie a bow around the novel, like the green light comes back at the end and it gives you like sort of a huh feeling. Mm-hmm. I think especially if you're 17 or 16 and right. reading this and, and realizing, I think it's nice. It's nice at that moment to to be like that young and realize that someone can like tie a bow around something that magnificent or like that holistically. I don't know. But at the same time, it does nothing to further 
truth or narrative. The only thing I think symbolism serves to do is potentially relate to human experience in that we endow right. our life. We endow things in our life with meaning. Yep. Um, but those things themselves don't actually further our lives like um, they do in a novel. Like, like an author can put a thing in a novel to carry the momentum of a novel. That's symbolism. But in our lives, if we are truth-telling through fictionalizing, like nothing holds significance other than what we give significance to. Right, yeah. And that's why fiction is kind of like a lie that yeah. is a truth. But before we continue about you know this conversation, I want to mention that I think our biggest goal on this podcast is to get more women on it because we're talking about the Scarlet Letter right now and it's just a bunch of dudes yes and that's fine but uh <laughs> moving on yeah i want i'm curious as to how much of that symbolism was taught to you how much did you pick up yourself because i couldn't tell you because basically virtually every book that was given to me in high school i did not read i didn't start yeah. seriously reading until i was 18 Which or 19 i'm also re realizing yeah. as a high school teacher now most of my kids don't read the book. <laughs> yeah, 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 which is which is a fact. I mean, like, you know, especially when I learned that you could just read the Cliff's notes. I, this is, like, poor. This is, I'm not a good role model because I, well, I should be. I should there's be, also, like, 85 different versions of Cliff Notes now. Yeah. That, schmoop. That, spark Notes. Don't even tell notes. me, man. Schmoop is, schmoop is the thing that all the kids. Should I, keep sh should I write a Cliff's Notes for my own book? Is that, like, the most narcissistic thing? Schmoop it, yeah. You're just schmoop it. Schmoop it. You yeah, little... just <laughs> own, I'm going to schmoop my own yeah. book. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's why I have, that's why my only tattoo says uh, symbols can be beautiful sometimes. It's also misspelled. It is, it is misspelled, yeah. yeah. And it's something that could have been corrected that I chose not to have corrected because I thought it was, I thought it was apropos. It's why we first liked you in the, in the first place. Because I was such a Right, George? Up. The misspelled tattoo? Yeah, I still, I still... Uh, forget where it's from. You told me once. Is it Joyce? Is that where it comes from? It's Vonnegut, I believe. I'm not Brian. Vonnegut. Um, it is Vonnegut, though. I'm still tattooless. I'm open for suggestions. I think you should. Uh, I definitely think you should get a dick tattoo. Because here's the thing: dick tattoos. They are almost. They're like accordions. You know what I mean? Like you know, it's like if you decorated an accordion. Brian is only one third done with his. Uh, <laughs> And has already brought up the dick tattoo as a viable, as a viable, a, I think it's a viable a enterprise for inking permanently one's yeah. own skin. At yeah. some point, I'm going to start speaking from the peanut gallery over here and just bleeping you on air. Uh, okay, yeah. that's fine. That's fine. I've yeah. already, I've already said that George hates Jews, which is just not true. And like you know, I, I mean, that's, that's fake news. <laughs> it's an inside joke because George is Lebanese and I'm, you know, some form American. of American. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Jewish American, which means next to nothing until I go to the airport and TSA pulls me over. <laughs> what were we talking about? My tattoo. That's why you guys liked me. Well, George said no tattoo. He hasn't had. Then you. Oh right, the, the, the dick tattoo. Right. No, it's important because we're getting back there. It's important because a if you want a real dick tattoo. You have to somehow maintain an erection for the duration of the tattoo being, you know, <laughs> I'm getting, <laughs> George, George is dying over here. Katie's giving me directions on was, Microsoft Word. Was that Katie slapping <laughs> the desk? It sounded like. Well, first like. of all, it's like, it's like the, no, maybe that's the next challenge. You know, the Odyssey is another challenge we could do on this show. I would do it. And we should talk about that another time. Maybe this, maybe this episode, but you know, at some other later date. I practically did it on Saturday. 
Did you? Well, I did. Yeah, I you, did, you did the 50 miler, right? I did three of them. I did three of the things. Okay, so you, you ran the 24 or 26. What was it? 26? 24. 24. You didn't drink. I drank a lot of beer. Okay, okay so let's backtrack. And let's explain the Odyssey. There are four elements to the we Odyssey. Are, we are going off topic. No, this is no. I mean, because this topic. is why we picked Sapiens because everything that falls yeah. under well, the umbrage of humankind, everything we say <laughs> falls under the umbrage of, su- the, uh, of the of Odyssey humankind. is a. Uh, I'm going to hold this uh, for a bit until we, uh, until we remember it. Um, it is a four part challenge that is. Uh, is a 24-hour challenge. Four criteria. With, yeah, it's a 24-hour challenge with four criteria yeah. that was conceived of uh, when I was a competitive collegiate runner. There Did are... you come up with it? No. Oh, okay. It was, it was, it was bequeathed to us. Um, there are four by, numbers. By Odysseus himself. Yeah, there are four numbers, uh, 6, 12, 18, and 24, and there are four activities. Uh Miles run, donuts eaten, beers drunk, and I'm gonna say self orgasms achieved. Yeah, for the for to orgasms achieved. Orgasms achieved, yeah. but by the self. But not yeah, not you, not um, applied like, to someone else. Yeah, yeah right, and right. so the idea is that you can especially take, not uh, if not yeah. consensually that yes. you know we and, and the idea is that, that you could do you can pair any activity with any number but you have to and so for for men i would say speaking as a man i would uh recommend six six orgasms, orgasms and yes. then the rest Naturally. is the rest actually is sort of up for grabs my go-to would be 24 miles run and 18 18 i would say 18 beers, uh, beers. Or donuts. those are interchangeable the yeah, 12 and, and the 18 and the 12 and the 18 are interchangeable and and so this saturday i ran 50 miles and I drank probably 14, 14 beers that day. Okay. And I had... So you did more than you needed to. I had no for orgasms achieved. And, okay. Um, but you had a lot... You had... A lot of beer. And I had a donuts. lot of donut-y things. Oh, uh, okay. I went, well, you know... I, I, I went okay. to Waffle House. Okay. You know, so you weren't doing the challenge, so we can't say anything, yeah. you know, necessarily and it's derogatory about what, it. what you eat. During a 50 miler. Like, all I ate during the race was uh, I drank probably a liter of Coca Cola mm-hmm. and ate six or seven handfuls of MMs and a Stroop waffle. Do you not think that caffeine gets in the way at some point? I think I, go, I think I went to it too early. Yeah, that's this too a, much. This is for a podcast of a different time. No, it's all, uh, you know, it's all, it's all relevant. No, you know. We're going to bring I think, it back. I think Yuval. We're going to try and bring George back into this. No, I think, I think Yuval <laughs> Noah Harari. <laughs> You know, George, I don't know if you'd agree, but I think he'd think that everything we're saying is is relevant to what he, you know, his experience. I, I, I think we should bring it back to narrative as a <laughs> narrative as a, a device, <laughs> as as a deceitful mechanism. You know, what, George, I would like action. to pose you a question, George. Can I? Can I? Pose you got you a it. Question. Yeah, I would like to pose. Uh, what do you think is a more efficient and perhaps? Um, Artistically, I'm gonna come up with a word here. I'm halfway done with a, a mediocre George Poor. Artistically <laughs> powerful. I'm gonna say this: efficient and artistically powerful way to convey truths about the world and ourselves. Fiction, oh, or oh, poetry. Oh man. Yeah. So I, I uh... and and I and you like I for our audience, I would like to. Uh, give a bit of background that George, I think, is one of the finest unknown poets in America. Unknown? 
He's, he's I know. I, I know of him. <laughs> yeah. And That's he's, a bit this strong. Man, this man has been. This man's been published before. For Christ he's in poets. He's in poets. Org. What's, what's, it, what's your answer so which, to that question, George? Which is more able? Is that is that yeah, essentially before, yeah, George, what we're down to? George, before yeah, before you start, I need I need to I need to announce. Well, first of all, wow, I am buzzed already. Jesus, already at thirty minutes. Yeah, these George pours. I'll tell you guys, these George pours. They'll get they'll get you. Straight to the dome, baby. Straight to the dome. Straight to the dome. Okay, so I, I just want to state for the record, I am a fiction writer. I actually have like minor contempt for poets because I think so many of them suck. And I know that fiction writers have the same proportion of suckers, but at the same time, like reading fiction is so much less abstract, especially, you know, especially at times, you know, poetry can be a word salad sometimes. Well, it's like fiction. If it's a world word salad, you're reading Henry Miller on acid or some shit like that. You know, I mean, not that he wrote fiction. He wrote some deranged form of memoir, but you know, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, so that's the score here. So we got two poets. <laughs> Devin writes fiction, but not anymore. You know, he kind of quit on the game over there. He's he's a poet and a nonfiction writer. Uh, and, and, and you know, me. We got me over here. So, okay, continue, George. Well, I don't, I don't think that it could possibly be answered, right? I don't, uh, I mean, because, I because if, we, if we... Wow. If we, if, we, if we answer this question, we have to ask ourselves, like, which, which medium of art, which art medium has the most truth potential the truth potential there's another good the old tp uh the truth potential because i mean you know uh, obviously this is what we do the writing is one of the oldest uh forms of artistic and informational exchange we convey things to ourselves every day through some kind of language right whether it's audible or not i you know i wouldn't say that a that a piece of statue uh, like statuary, like 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 a, a, a really artistic piece of Italian marble uh, statuary could do as much as say a novel could, right? I don't think I'm going to get a lot of pushback on that. Did you? Yeah, but I mean, I did, you just, did you just compare? Marble, did you just compare a a bust to the written word? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we're talking about like the, the truth potential yeah. of, of artistic mediums here, right? Fair enough. Like fair a enough. fixed slab, a fixed slab is only, it's not, I mean, you it can be witnessed, uh, but I still think that like a piece of visual art is probably capable of a little, of, of conveying a little more than the face of George Washington, you know, like you could find at the Met there in New York, right? I simply, and I mean, like even even really like the most dramatic pieces. Uh, I don't know, man. Statuary. Enough, no, I mean, like en- modern enough, sculpture. Enough, not- enough dead, pre- enough dead presidents in my room, and like you know, I feel artistically fulfilled. Well, also to, That's, I, well, to, <laughs> you know I mean? to quickly counteract the point that George has not made, but as a as <laughs> as a as a. As a yeah, he's, a, talking, he's talking about fucking like the, as the a, thinker or as something. A poet, <laughs> as a poet, George, and we talked about this poem, uh, Rilke's archaic torso of Apollo, the one that the one that ends, "You must change your life." Oh yeah, um, yeah, of course. Which is a poem about a statue. Yeah, which is what is uh, uh, what's that called? What's the word for it? Ekphrastic. Ekphrastic. Ekphrastic yes. poem. As yeah, is W. H. Auden's uh, the one about Icarus, uh, Musée des Beaux Arts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about suffering, they do not the old masters. Rilke's poem is an ekphrastic about a statue that is missing so much, and I would argue the poem, it well it 
it puts your point into some sort of perspective because the poem would not exist without the incomplete statue. But the poem itself, to me, renders more meaning than the statue. Hmm. Because of the incompleteness yeah, of the statue. I mean, Maybe that in and of itself, that double sort of existence of both is a good sort of uh, reckoning for art itself that one cannot exist without the other. And th- But that's all great and good. It is great and good. But we wanted... As I am. We wanted... But we wanted mm-hmm. to know... We wanted George's what, opinion. You, you you euphemistically said, what's better, poetry yeah. or fiction? And George didn't That's say, basically what yeah, you and said. And George didn't put it... And George... I, and, want, I want someone... Before we even continue with the conversation, I'm going to count to three. No, but... Okay, At the end we'll of three, all right, okay. you have to say poetry or fiction. George, you on board? Oh, man. You I have can't to. You this is such. This you have to. This I'm is say phoning it in. Where we all know what we're going to say. What I want to do. I might say fiction. What I want to do is I say. I might say fiction, but. What we, you, you, said, you said basically better at revealing truth. Mm-hmm. But we have to define truth because we were just talking about how uh, fiction has a better ability. Yeah, maybe, to, we, maybe we end the podcast by us doing the one, two, three. I kind of like that idea, actually. Yeah. Uh, what is, are we asking like, what do we mean by truth when we say revealing truth? It seems to me like we need to go to a question of what, what does good art do in the first place? That's yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so we're going to go in a circle and we're going to start with George. Uh, the question is what does, what does good art do? Is that, is that the question? What does good art do? What does good art do? W D G A D. What do you got? What does it do? What does it do? And why do we do it still, considering that well, let's do the, this dude is, says let's that do, fiction... No, I mean, he says that fiction true. is the thing that we... Is the launching pad for our entire species, you know? So why do we still do it? Is it still necessary? I mean, obviously, it's performed in our political spheres and such things like that, you know? Conti- you know, go ahead. Let's get some platitudes out of the way first, because oh, yes. there are too many platitudes That's about a good memoir this. Title. Right. So, so the <laughs> the one that you're going to see, like uh, speaking of tattoos, the one you might see tattooed on some people is is Ars Gratia Artists, right? Art for art's sake. That one's pretty good. I don't mind that platitude. But then there's the other one, right? What's how's it go? Art, good art should. Uh, disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Wow. That's oh, man. nonsense. You got them lined up. Uh, just bandolier, man. <laughs> I don't. Jesus. I mean, I just, that's that's garbage, right? And then there's this whole idea that anyone who 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 creates art is attempting to escape death. That's also bullshit, uh, right? Like, I mean, a, yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, I think making making art making art uh, uh, pulls us toward uh, of the the impermanent, right? You you were talking about the difference between. Poetry and fiction. It's it's my assertion that poetry celebrates the impermanent, while fiction attempts to preserve uh, something. Uh, that's that's I, that's what I contest. But what what must good art do? Uh, good art must be different. It's got to be it's got to be advancing the narrative, right? Especially when we talk about fiction, we're talking about contributing to the great conversation, right? If all you've got to do is is bang the same you know like bad detective story drum uh or another another iteration of like a vaguely interesting uh commercial uh uh literature like i don't know why you're doing it i don't know why you're doing it if you're not trying to to further the craft if you're not trying to do something different uh or or capture something unique i think that's what good art does i think i think anything else that just sort of uh follows behind Everything that's already been done is is not is not necessarily art. I think it's just commodity uh, masquerading as as creativity. 
So there you go. But you do come at this stuff from somewhat of a conventional angle, somewhat of drawing from tradition. So how do you draw? How, how, how do you how do you reconcile that with pushing the technology forward? Well, I th- I think I mean we we can we can I'm not going to, <laughs> but we could talk about the last hundred years of literature, and we could talk about the last hundred years of style, right? Where certain things have been innovated, uh, given you know any any literary decade or school. Uh, here at the onset, or at least almost 20 years into the 21st century, uh, I think the last, for me, the last place that I feel qualified to innovate within uh, a tradition is the tradition of genre and bending genre to make it do uh, things that it hasn't been asked to do before. Uh, that's what that's what I like to do. So where, where do you see room for uh, experimentation on the level of prose i mean not just not just uh you know fiction or nonfiction, even even uh lines like you know verse um do you not think that there's room to grow there because i mean i think separate distinct from the literary scene language is constantly evolving i mean you know due to technology whatever slang whatever you want to call colloquialisms i don't know i mean i i, I i've moved away from experimental stuff as I've gotten older, but at the same time stayed there because I believe in the value of the new, you know, the value of a new perspective or a new voice yeah. or what, what, may, what, whatever it may be, you know, uh, uh, you know, detached from any like of that kind of like politically driven uh, locus of like whom it's coming from. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, when, I mean, again, when we look back at the 20th century, right, there, there's so many people that are playing with the prose on the on the level of the prose, right, down in the sentence doing things. Uh, you have, you know, uh, uh, Hemingway, uh, even uh, Faulkner, of course, you've got Joyce. I mean, they, they practically broke the system and, and contributed. Oh, yeah. Um, Fal- style for the for the next hundred years. Right. Falk- Faulkner practically invented the voice of an autistic gentleman, essentially. I mean, I don't think. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think anyone's anyone's written about that before. If I'm not, and then I mean, you've got mistaken. you've got Gertrude Gertrude Stein, Tinder Buttons. Yeah. I mean, you're you're yeah, Stein especially. It's it's happening all over the place. You know, the 20s was was that revolutionary time, but but that that, that struggled to carry on through, say, like the 60s or even the 50s. I mean, we we had we had the beat poets, which I, I you know I think are quite divisive. I think most people, if you're if you're really into uh, literature, especially poetry, you, you you either fall one place or the other on the uh, on the beats. But but then you of course you have like the Langpos, right? The language poets who were just dreadful across the board, right? I forget the poem, Devin. You may remember it, where where it's where it's just one person reading uh, like from zero to a hundred, and and they just get more worked up about it. Zero, one, two, and then they just get really into it towards the end. 98, 99, you know, things like that. that's. I'm sorry, that's you've you've lost me, right? Who? Yeah, so okay. for every action, equal and well, equal it's, it's and opposite. The, it's like, like the, the poetic avant-garde. equivalent of John Cage's four thirty three. Is it four thirty three? Yeah. The, who are these people? This, I don't know who the yeah. who the language poets are. I don't even. A lot of I honestly poets. don't even know who the beat poets are because I only know the beat Ginsburg, fiction writers. You've Ginsburg. You've got uh, Ferlinghetti. You've got. Uh, Kerouac writing fiction. So Ker- Kerouac wrote fiction. Was he? Cl- were were they like? Was he and Burroughs and all of them? Were they close with these guys? These yeah, poets? They, that's yeah. that same scene, right, George? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. I think a lot of them. Who was? Who was the? Who was the? Um, 
was it Burroughs that they all sort of looked up to until he got high on smack and shot his wife in the face and nobody yeah. minded about and you have, it? Yeah, Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> yeah, and he was kind of the best sort of them. <laughs> Gonzo, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I that, mean, really, that's yeah. that's what the Beats gave us more than anything was Hunter S. Thompson. You know, for what he was for what he was worth. I know he's divisive as well, but I I quite like Hunter. Oh yeah, I I like him a Rum lot. Rum Diaries, great. I like him a lot. Well, I, I Gonzo think... Gonzo journalism, like Tom Wolfe too. I think puts calls a lot of fiction into question. Like I is Tom, Tom Wolfe a beat? I would say he is. He's like from, he was like thirties, wasn't he? No. Tom Wolf, the journalist, is not a well. He just passed away. I wouldn't call him a beat. He's from I would call him like new school journalism, avant garde. He's sort of he. I would say he is uh, descended from that Burroughs, Hunter S. Thompson, sort of like take give yourself a lot of permission to call truth whatever truth is, uh-huh. and I find I find some of Tom Wolf stuff. I read it because he died this year i read the right stuff about the about the um astronauts going to space which got a lot was a bestseller but also got a lot of criticism because there's a great deal of things extrapolated potentially in the in the book and it calls itself nonfiction. um but i found it unbelievably entertaining and a portrait of an era and i think there's a lot of truth in its fiction which i think is Maybe should bring nonfiction into the realm of conversation. Conversation, because what we call truth is so often not a lie, and what we call lies. Yeah, so and I think that's. I, I honestly am starting to realize that that's the uh, that's the nucleus of this conversation. Because if we're talking about if we're talking about how you can lie and make fictions and make great stories that reflect on our actual experience, our real experience. And teach us lessons and emotions and all that great stuff. Yet we and, and 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 in addition to that, we have this person Harari, who's basically you know written an entire book on human history based on the idea that we can create fiction in order to further ourselves. What truth? What, what role does truth have in in what we're doing on a day to day basis? Well, our politics certainly calls that into question. Easily the most important realm, I think. Yes. You know? I think more so than anyone's sort yeah. of podunk novel or poem. And, of course, science. Like, I mean, science is science is, is beyond a, a, a narrative truth, which would be what's being deployed in politics, right? Changing the narrative, uh, changing the popularity. But, I mean, if there's, if there's any objectivity, uh, it, it has to come from physics. It has to come from, from chemistry. Science. It has yeah, to come what if, from what if we live in a science. world where science is completely disregarded? Well, as also, it's being, like, like, uh, or, or better yet, we live we in do. a world. We, li- we, we live in a world. Well, ha- it's you know almost like fifty percent disregarded, give or take. But but we do live in a world in which science is not complete and never will be complete. Correct. And that, so that's, that's the big ticket right there yeah. because we have to we have to work our way around. The fact that we don't know exactly what's going on. We never really totally will. And so these representations, these metaphors still have value, obviously, in our society. Yeah. That's why we keep writing fiction, I guess, to answer the Maybe. question we've been driving I mean, like at. It's, but I, it's like we live in a world where where, where our presidents – because we all here have the same president. Uh, his response to the wildfires still raging in California was that we should have more deforestation. Which is a scientific lie um, that, that 
it is perhaps the four like the, or what they would call in tech a uh, a greedy algorithm yeah. because it's basically doing the thing that's easiest that you see before you that doesn't take the long term yeah. into effect. Like you know? if we take down all the forest and there's no trees to catch fire, but we don't understand that, or we we are just lying to ourselves that that it is the taking down of the forest that in large respects is causing the fire, um, or is one cause. And so to we live in a world where such where the like fiction, nonfiction, and poetry take a backseat to whatever our president says. Always. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, a caboose seat yeah. on, the, on the long train of American legislation and, and, yeah. and economy. And yeah. so if we, if we live in a world where even our artful lies take a backseat to someone's less artful, politically motivated lies... What is the purpose of our artful lies? Ostensibly, well, no, not even ostensibly. It's a great question, Devin. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Our more artful lies have a lot of value because the people that are comprehending them also comprehend the fact that they are lies and they turn them into truths themselves. When we're forced to accept the truth without interpretation i think that's be that becomes a, a huge problem and that that's where in modern times we've we've run into trouble in terms of we can't even agree on facts so when you take yeah. that into consideration you know no george go ahead yeah, go we ahead. need some george yeah. uh, no we i was, need, I was just going to tie that back to i was just going to tie that back to nonfiction because because i mean you, you say people are happy to receive our lies right our fictions and live in them and swim in them and, and make them real for themselves, right? We're selling them, we're selling them an imagination for a little while. We're giving them some characters. We're we're we're, we're giving them uh, uh, hopefully some some uh, a distraction at at, at worst, uh, something that could change their perspective at best, hopefully, right? Uh, but when when somebody buys a nonfiction book and it turns out later that that nonfiction author was lying through their teeth the whole time, a million little people are ready to grab the pitchforks and the torches. Exactly. James Frey, I believe was his name, right? Uh, he's been practically wiped from the bookshelf, right? Because because he's been he's been erased because people get so upset when they think they're being sold a truth or that which is truthful. And when it turns out not to be, they think they've been swindled. Yet when somebody buys fiction, they don't have this issue. They go, oh, I, I admit what it is. And that's because of the emotional connection that we that we are more willing to give to that which claims to be true than we are to that which claims to be fiction. But we, we do still, of course, have tremendous attachments, emotional attachments to fiction. Fandom uh, in, in all of its ways, be it for a television show or a cartoon series or a book or a series of books, right? Game of Thrones comes to mind. People are crazy for it, right? So which, which is it that has the greater capacity for obsession? Is it, is it the thing that claims to be a truth or is it the, the thing that admits that it's, that it's uh, imagine that, that it's imaginary, but that can produce something like an yeah. emotional truth in each of us. I mean, are they equal forces greater than or equal to? I think, well, yeah. I mean, I, I think you just basically touched on the fact that politically uh, the former is true. <coughs> whatever, whatever can convince us of being fact is the most important thing yeah. politically well, and, and, and emotionally on an individual basis, unfortunately, because we haven't institutionalized I guess emotions. We have not done that to to this point, other than mental health. I do think I do think that fiction, all create all all forms of literary work, do 
do something on us for that. But fiction in particular, and poetry for that matter, do a, do a great deal of work on directing the ability for us to feel and to think and, and sure. kind of widen that circumference of, of human experience, which I don't think politics does. I think in a lot of ways it narrows it um, I, and constricts it. But I, I also worry that, and this perhaps isn't like a, uh, a great thing to say, and nor- normally, n- normally I have, I'm going to relate it back to my, my current job as a high school teacher. I am a high school teacher. Which is why he drinks. Um, and um, I get the question a lot of, of like, uh, Mr. Kelly, why are we reading this book? Of which I have truly no response. Um, <laughs> um, there is the one response I, I usually go to, which I think is like sort of paraphrased from Baldwin, which is essentially that like we read books to to make us us feel individually less alone in the world. We find in them a narrator or a, a protagonist or an antagonist, someone or some feeling that makes us feel like we are less alone in the world. Like the way in which we think about the world is not as different as we think it is. I wonder sometimes whether we are more inclined I wondered what I wonder when I think about that is like I think that that is a great thing because I think so often that art does address the feelings of people who are so often unaddressed by large portions of discourse. But I also wonder about like how often it is that we pick up a book with a narrator that we just despise. And because we have nothing to relate in that narrator, we put the book down. And I wish that we could keep reading that book with that awful narrator. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't, I don't want us to live in a world where we just simply read things that have or, or relate to things that have people that we can easily relate to. I want to live in a world where, where we, we do challenge ourselves to sort, of, to sort of enter into the lives, especially in an artful way, of people that we cannot relate to. I think, and I think that that is a much larger discussion. It is. It is. It, it has to do with censorship. I think that's where uh, sensitivity readings come in, to be honest. And not that th- those are a bad thing. They're definitely a good thing. I mean, I think it's important that we're relating to people that we are not in direct contact with and so on. But uh, I totally agree. I think that the dirt of our society should be recognized in order for study, if anything else. You know? Yeah. Considering that we brought up truth-telling in our modern society. Um, do you think that writing, and this is to everyone in the room, is a, that writing in and of itself is a viable means of enacting change? Progressing the human Progressing change, human progressing the human race. Right, yeah. In this moment right now, in this moment that we stand right now, like what, what viability does, does writing have to do anything? Does it? George, your turn. Hmm. I, I don't. Maybe it, it, it used to have more of uh, an ability to do this, uh, but I feel that uh, the marketplace of ideas is too loud now. I think if you want to, if it's, you want to so enact it, it, it's too, there's too much of it. I mean, like, so. And, and that go, that goes for everything it goes for everything except for like major films because the 
the price point to get in on like creating a major motion picture is tremendous, right? So you're gonna have to you're gonna have to have that money if you want to make a movie. All you have to have to make a book, uh, I mean, if yeah. if you're the author, all you have to have is paper and pen, right? Um, it, I think it costs. It, it's it, writing has got to be the cheapest commodified art form. Con, I mean, in the in the contemporary marketplace of ideas. Uh, uh, but of course, we 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 talk about frequently uh, in our interpersonal lives the the sort of gatekeepers, the presses that that sort of throttle or or produce these things. And of course, they're looking at it from a business perspective. You know, we we think about those great books, right? Uh, the great books of history that may or may not have had more of an impact on the societies in which they were initially released that could have eventually spread elsewhere uh, for good or bad. But I, I don't know now, honestly, now if you want to sell a book, it, it practically has to be made into a movie before it sells considerably. I, you um, know, you know, George, I agree with, I agree with that. And uh, you know, that's kind of the reason why we are starting the press. Our sort of rebuttal to that is that we want to acquire books that we feel deserve to be out there and that progress our species. If that's a, if that's the right way to put it, I mean, I, I really think it is. But to, pr- to prove why we want to do this is because we want to invest in our writers. So if our writers can make an impact on people around us and the communities around us, the communities that we interact with, we want to invest in them. And 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 George, what you're saying is has to it comes down to money. It really does. Uh, you know, it comes down to the society we live in and. If we invest in our writers, we believe that we will put out work that does affect the kind of change that writing may have used to or still does to a certain degree, maybe to a lar- uh, to a lesser per capita extent. But we want to increase that. That's our goal. I want to I want to I want to sorry I didn't mean to interrupt. I want to clarify something because I think that there are th- that there are ideas out there uh, that are enacted in fiction form that can change, can affect change. Uh, it's just, for as, as far as the consumer is concerned, it's how do we find those, right? So that, so that if, you're, if, you're, if your brand is centered on that, then I think that that is, you know, declaring uh, uh, the mission statement of the press. We, we want to publish uh, ideas. We want to publish things that are furthering the narrative, things that are furthering the conversation, uh, you know, and and people know that about the press, uh, and people can find those kinds of things there. Uh, but you know, you come to as a, as a former librarian, right? You come to the library, and and you want uh, you you have that question. You pose that question to me as an adult services librarian. You know, which of these books is going to is going to change me? Uh, like, I don't. You know, I would have a hard time just taking you to the shelf, right? I I, I could show you to the books that changed me, the books that that historically changed something. But now, I mean, like we had 150,000 materials at, at my former library, which was a medium-sized library. It's just so much. It's so much. It's the same with TV. It's the same with music. You know, uh, new forms of delivery have have the market swollen up like that. So th- there needs to be a place for that very reason. Yeah, and why? Well, that it thus thus ends my interjection. Well, I think I, th- I think to your point, George, the the response to me, especially because we are living in. I would say late capitalism is that if you want to affect change, you affect change by investing in your community and you invest in the community of relatively like-minded folks and their tangential counterparts. And you don't, you actually don't shoot for the moon. 
you shoot for the streetlights. Like you shoot for uh, little goals that you think are right above you um, because most of everything is unachievable in late capitalism. Wow. And um, (laughs) unless you have $10 billion, most of everything is deeply unachievable. And so you shoot for the goals that you can achieve and you affect them in the places where they mean something when you achieve them. And because meaning something when you, like getting a outcome when you achieve a goal should mean communal benefits. It should mean that like you see someone you directly affected and they say thank you. And I think like that I think is is one of the weirdly positive uh, consequences of living in this era is that in order to affect change in this era, you return to a place where affecting change means you affect the person who is right next to you. And therefore, you can directly benefit in some sort of holistic way, like like things like gratitude become more important now than they did years ago, um, where like your gratitude was someone who got your package 2,000 miles away. Um, like, I think that we are weirdly returning to an era where, like, you have to see someone right next to you. And uh, I think that's, like, in some ways a good, bad thing. No, I agree. And I also think that uh, literature is not just about edification or, you know, didacticism or anything like that. It's really about bringing to people a more full a more full version of humanity, really. I mean that that that's what it's about, and that's why we do what we do. Yeah, that's why it's why we're doing this podcast where we're talking to people that we uh, that we that we know and love. Exactly, like George, like George, so why like George? Yeah, yeah. And we we enrich each other in the same way that that art enriches uh, the people that receive it, right? Uh, experience uh, the, the 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 enriching of the fleeting uh, existence, right? Some some joy, some ecstatic now that happens when we watch the series finale of a great TV show, or when we uh, go back, we, we we return to that book that has meant so much to us, and and scan through for that one paragraph that we just can't get enough of, right? I mean, it's in in a lot of ways, it's the cultivation and the and the and the intelligent. Um, uh, uh, sort of obsession, right? I mean, we it's it's okay to be obsessed with something. I mean, uh, it, in in many ways, that's what being alive is, right? I mean, our obsession is we don't want to lose it, we don't want to we don't want to let it go. So we 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 dig our claws into that to that great book, and then we as writers have the have the additional privilege of of having you know, hundreds of books and works and paintings and television shows and movies and songs that, that we pour into, then we then pour into, siphon into that thing that we make, right? It's it's trying to give back, trying to to grind it all down and 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 recycle through yeah. our individual subjective uh, you know uh, uh, life. Uh, and that's I for, for me as I as I assume for for many creatives, uh, the 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 three of y'all, including Katie there, uh, uh, right. I mean, that's why we, we do it because we, you say it's not about, um, so much self edification, Brian, I completely, I completely agree, 
but I, you know, I think for a lot of us, this is a this is a compulsion, right? We we have a compulsion. We we take in. We have to have some output. There's only so much input we can we can have before we have to make something with it, right? Yeah, and and all right, all right, guys, we're gonna climb. We're we're gonna, we're gonna close this down. Uh, it's been a it's been a long hour. I am sufficiently fucking hammed off the bone. I'm this George po- this George poor. I'm <laughs> yeah. serious. It, I'm, ha- I'm I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Yeah, to is s- gone. I'm sp- I'm struggling. Yeah, it actually kind of it, it's very it's very low. It's, it's a few fingers at best. I'm struggling to talk up, straight. George? I mean, we're not like we're just talking to George, right? Like, I'm just gonna. <laughs> yeah, are you coming up yeah. soon, George? We we really while we have to, you, I certainly George hope to if I can find work. Bit. Yeah, but you know, I'm gonna wind this down. Okay. And yeah, jo- Devin's upset. I I'm understand. Deeply upset. Devin, Devin's having a fun time. That's why you know that's that's what we do here. <laughs> Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Animal Riot Press or Facebook and Instagram at the same name or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the first episode of the Animal Riot podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Devin Kelly and George Sawaya. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. And that's it for tonight. Thank you very much. Woo! We're done. See ya. Hey, not bad, fellas. Did we did we get too serious? Should we have should we have had a little more fun? Getting gully as the fern How no much about Lee